All right, well, good morning once again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and it's a long chapter, and I decided I think we're just going to cover the first 14 verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 to 14, the title of today's lesson is A Disobedient Heart. A Disobedient Heart. And to stretch out our legs and to honor God's word, why don't we all stand up and let's read along as I read out loud. 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash, in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. And Jonathan struck the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Then all Israel heard the news that Saul had struck the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Mishmash east of beth now the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. And then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. And also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring near to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Saul said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Mismash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not entreated the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Please be seated. 
Well, as I had alluded to, if you were here last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we saw Israel's treachery on full display when they defied God and wanted to be just like all the other nations, replacing God for an earthly king. And now here in the subsequent three chapters, through a rapid series of events, there was a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Saul. And Saul emerged as Israel's first king. We read in the Bible that Saul was a choice, handsome man. He was in the prime of his life, and he stood a head taller than anyone else. And in chapters 10 and 11, Saul was named king three times, just to be clear. Once was in private and two times in public. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, in a private anointing, Samuel pours oil on Saul's head and declares him as Israel's ruler. Then the first public announcement occurred when Samuel gathered all of Israel at Mitzpah. You can read this in chapter 10, verse 17. And after an elaborate process of of elimination, Samuel declares Saul as king, even though Saul was nowhere to be found. And in his shyness, Saul was actually hiding himself behind some baggage. But finally, in the second public ceremony, After Saul leading initial success in in battle over the Ammonites, we read in chapter 11, verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. So God had given Saul a great start, and Samuel admitted in chapter 12 that he was now old, and gray. And despite Israel's faithlessness, Samuel reassured Israel that the monarchy that they had asked for would work as long as the king and the people followed God. At the end of chapter 12, Samuel exhorts uh, Israel, and Samuel says, only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart. For see what great things God has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And so now this brings us to chapter 13. And in this chapter, we're going to divide these first 14 verses into four sections. First, the setting in verse 1 to 7. Second, the violation in verses 8 to 10. Third, the explanation, verse 11 and 12. And fourth, the judgment, verse 13 and 14. So if you still have your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 13, let's start with verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now stop right there, because depending on what Bible you have, If you have the ESV, it reads, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, the numbers in this verse were lost in the early transmission of the Hebrew text. And in fact, because it was lost, the Greek translation of this verse in the Septuagint, it, the, the Greek translation actually omits this verse altogether. Because the translators were like, we don't have these numbers we, we don't have enough information to translate this verse, so they actually omit this verse. Now, as some of you remember, when we first started this series, First and Second Samuel was likely originally written by human authors a couple of generations after King David, so maybe between 800 and 900 BC. Now, let's just take a little side tour to talk a little bit about how we got the Old Testament. So the original writings that Moses had, you know, back in 1400 BC, or the original autographs of 1st and 2nd Samuel, we don't have them anymore. All the original autographs of the entire Bible, especially the Old Testament, we don't have. But what happens is that when the books of the Bible, like 1st Samuel, was first written and compiled, we had scribes that would meticulously copy these original autographs. These autographs, which were written in papyrus, they would be copied over and over and over again over hundreds and over thousands of years. In fact, the oldest copies of the Bible that we had were found fairly recently in the last century with what is sometimes called the Qumran Scrolls or the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of these scrolls that were found in Qumran caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were dated to 300 BC. And one of the discoveries was actually a nearly intact scroll of all 66 chapters of Isaiah and that, experts date it as somewhere between 100 and 150 BC. If you want to know, our Hebrew Old Testament, the oldest old, uh, Hebrew Old Testament that we have in its completion is what is sometimes called the Masoretic Text, or the Leningrad Codex 19a, and that's dated 1000 AD. So when a lot of times we think, oh, what does the original Hebrew say? Most of Bible translators and scholars will look at that Masoretic text that's dated 1009 or 19 BC, or excuse me, AD. But fascinating, when the Qumran scrolls were discovered and they found the, amazingly, the entire scroll of Isaiah, 150 BC, and they compare it to the Leningrad Codex, 1000 AD. So this is over a thousand years older than anything else we had. Amazingly, just about everything matched word for word with very few uh, exceptions. So, in this Masoretic text, that's 1000 AD, these numbers were lost. So where do we get these numbers? Well, 
some Bible translators would look at Acts 13.21. Because when you read what the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text literally reads, Saul was a son of a year in his reigning, and two years he reigned over Israel. So that's in the Masoretic text. But when Bible, read, even with you, if you were to read it, you would say, wait a minute, I've, I've read 1 Samuel. Saul was not one year old when he became king, and he reigned for much more than just two years. So the Bible translators would look at Acts chapter 13, verse 21. Luke records the apostle Paul saying, after Samuel the prophet, they asked for a king. And Paul said, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And Josephus also records in his Antiquities, volume 10, that Saul reigned for 40 years. So the Bible translators said, okay, we got these missing numbers. Saul was probably about 30 years old, and he reigned for about 40 years, but there was a two in there. So then some of your English translations would say Saul was 30 years old, and he reigned for 42 years. What I want you guys to take out of this is because 1 Samuel is actually a book that has the most missing words and missing numbers, perhaps in all the Bible. But even though there are a few missing words, it doesn't take away from the most important message, the most important story that God wants to write and convey to us, the readers. So, Saul, perhaps he was 30 years old, reigned for about 40 years. Verse 2, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul, 1,000 were with Jonathan. So we see now here, just in verse 2, that much time had elapsed between chapter 8 and chapter 13. Remember, in chapter 8, Saul was just anointed king. He was young, he was handsome, and now his firstborn son, Jonathan, is old enough and capable of commanding troops and armies. And we read here that Saul was in mishmash, which is about seven kilometers northeast of where Solomon was. So they were about maybe five miles separated, northeast and southwest. And in the middle were this garrison and this area where, where the Philistines had resided. And so now we read in verse 3, that Jonathan struck the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land. So this garrison was strategically situated in a way that it was posing a threat to Israel. And Geba was located right in between where Jonathan was and where Saul was. And so when Jonathan had victory over this garrison, word of this came to the Philistines. And the Philistines says, uh-oh, you know, we've got a war, a battle on our hands. And, and King Saul understood this, so he blows his trumpet to summon a much larger army uh, of Israel, very similar to what was done in Ju Judges chapter 3, verse 27. So now we go to verse 4. The people were then summoned to Saul 
at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a very important city, especially in this time period. It was Israel's base camp during Joshua and the conquest. Gilgal was kind of like their, their main base camp as they sent people to the north and to the south to conquer the land of Canaan. Samuel had set a pattern to go to Gilgal regularly to serve as Israel's judge in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And 1 Samuel records that Samuel had asked Saul to go to Gilgal three times to wait for Samuel. And after Saul would wait for Samuel, offerings and sacrifices would be made at Gilgal upon Samuel's arrival. The first time this happens is in 1 Samuel chapter 10 after Saul's private anointing. I'll just read here. 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 6, it says, And you, that is Saul, shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you. So Samuel tells Saul, you're, you're going to go to Gilgal, and when I get there, we are going to offer sacrifices, offerings. You need to just wait there seven days until I arrive. The second time this happens was to crown Saul king. And this happens in chapter 11. Samuel says to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, there they made Saul king. There they also offered sacrifices, peace offerings before Yahweh. And there Saul and all the men of Israel were exceedingly glad. And so now here in chapter 13, a third time, Saul is asked to wait at Gilgal for Samuel. Here in chapter 13, verse 4. Let's read on verse 5. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And again, we've got another number. The original Masoretic text, 1000 AD, has 30,000. But there are some other ancient Syriac texts and one Greek translation that reads 3,000. So if you have the NIV or the CSV, your, your Bible is going to read 3,000. Some of you, your Bibles is, is 30,000 chariots. And the reason why they probably put 3,000 chariots instead of 30,000 is they thought, well, if there's only 6,000 horsemen, how can there be 30,000 chariots, right? It'd be like, all right, we have 30,000 tanks, but only 6,000 drivers. So I thought, ah, Text might be a little wrong. Let's erase the zero. Hebrew numbers aren't written with zeros, but, but you get the picture. But whether or not the Philistines had 3,000 chariots or 30,000 chariots, uh, the reality remains the Israelites were outnumbered and military strength was in favor of the Philistines. Let's read on in verse 6. Now the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait for the people were hard-pressed. Some of your Bible translations, the men of Israel were in trouble or their situation was critical. 
I like one translation. It says, the men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. So the Philistines had controlled the high ground. And you know, in ancient, you know, battles of war, having the high ground was a clear military advantage. They were camping at Mishmash, and so they controlled most of the central Benjamin Plateau, effectively cutting Israel in half, Saul's forces in the north and Jonathan's forces in the south. And they had limited Israel's access even to the coast toward the Mediterranean Sea. And we see here in verse 7, as for Saul... He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So when Saul sees what was happening, he remains in Gilgal. So he retreats from Mismash in the area of Mismash back to Gilgal, essentially giving the Philistines full control over this region. And the Israelites who were near this area, they sensed this threatening, imminent danger and we read in verse 6, they were hiding in, in, in pits, in caves, wherever they can find any type of physical shelter to hide, to protect themselves from impending attack with the Philistines. So what is the setting? The setting is Israel was in a helpless, desperate state. And my question to us in this room is, when was the last time you have felt like you were in a seemingly helpless situation? Like maybe you feel like you're in one today. We know that in this life, 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, today, tomorrow, that even though we're God's people, that you and I will oftentimes be placed by God in situations of uncertainty, peril, dangerous circumstance. So what's the setting here in the story? With the Philistines advancing, Israel was in dire straits. Well, let's look now at the violation. The violation, and we see this in verses 8 to 10. Look at verse 8. And Saul waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. And I had already explained to you, this is not the first time he had received this instruction. He had clearly received a similar instruction in chapter 10, verse 8, when after he was anointed, Samuel specifically asked Saul to wait at Gilgal for seven days. And that first time, he obeyed. Now, some believe that this waiting at Gilgal had some sort of special religious meaning. It's not just like you, you know, going to your doctor's office and your doctor's running late and you're just, you know, waiting, you know, doing nothing. There was probably a period of preparation, of even consecration in preparation for the priest, uh, the prophet, Samuel coming. But one thing was different here in this chapter Look at verse 8 again. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So this time, there was a test. This time, the situation was different. 
First, Saul did wait a full seven days, as we probably read here in the text. But Samuel had not arrived. Samuel was not there. But not only that, but he's waiting. And maybe by the end of the seventh day and Samuel wasn't there, what happens to the people? It says the people were scattering from Saul. His troops were losing morale and confidence in King Saul, and they started to scatter. The people were starting to desert King Saul. So what does Saul do? What does he decide to do? Well, we read it in verse 9 and 10. Saul says, bring near to me, burn offering, peace offering, and he offered the burn offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burn offering, right then, Samuel came. And Saul goes out to meet him and to greet him. And you notice that even though Saul had violated the commands of God, he didn't see it as a big deal. He just took practical matters, right? Uh, the people were losing morale. Uh, it's been seven days. Uh, someone's got to offer the, the offering. Can you imagine, um, let's say we, we, we come to church on a Sunday and the pastor wasn't there. <laughs> We're like, well, someone needs to go up, all right? Uh, someone has to fill in, you know, as a substitute. And so that's probably what Saul felt. And time was of the essence. And so he took matters into his own hands he knew that God's law had forbade anyone to offer these types of offerings. Just to be clear, Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, it reads that Moses wrote, You and your sons with you shall keep your priesthood. I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. God had only allowed the Levitical priesthood to approach God in the tent of meeting to offer these types of burnt offerings and peace offerings. If you were an outsider, to do this would not only violate God's law, but you shall be put to death. But Samuel was late, and Saul's men were at risk of dying, and they were hiding in caves. And those that retreated to Gilgal were now defecting and abandoning him. Now, you may ask the same question. What's the big fuss? Why the big deal? No one's perfect. Saul had the best of intentions. Can't God just overlook this and, and, and forgive uh, Saul and then let's move on? But see, when God writes his autobiography here in the Old Testament, one of the things he wants to make clear to the reader is this. We must approach a holy God and worship him in the prescribed manner that he has explicitly sanctioned. Back in Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses, go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around. Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain 
shall surely be put to death. And then in Leviticus, the first nine chapters of Leviticus, God gives Israel explicit and detailed instructions on how to approach God, how to present your offerings, how to make them acceptable. But what happens in Leviticus chapter 10? It reads, Then Nadab and Abihu, these were the highest of the Levitical priests, Aaron's two sons, they took their respective fire pans and put fire in them. And they placed incense on them and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which God had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them. And they died before Yahweh. But get this, Moses says to Aaron, it is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people, I will be glorified. So see, brothers and sisters, we can only approach God in the way that he has prescribed. And today, we don't offer lambs, goats, and rams for sacrifice. There is only one way you and I can come to God. And you know what the answer is. It is through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul writes, for through Christ Jesus, we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. There is no other way. You and I can have the best of intentions. You and I can have great zeal. You and I may want to seek and desire the one true God and not the false gods. But if you and I don't come in the manner that God prescribes like King Saul, you and I will be guilty of violating God's command and face God's wrath and judgment. So the setting, the Philistines are threatening Israel. The violation, Saul does not wait, and he offers unauthorized sacrifices and unsanctioned worship to God. Third, let's look at the explanation. The explanation. And look at verse 11. You can even sense how Samuel approaches this. But Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? Samuel immediately recognizes the severity of this incident. And so Saul tries to give his explanation, his excuse. He believes he has a valid reason. The people were deserting Saul. Saul's armed men, they were all going back home. Samuel did not arrive at the appointed time. The Philistines were assembling at Mishmash on the high ground, threatening thousands of my people who need to hide in the lower elevation in the pits and in the caves. Saul feared that the Philistines would soon now come to Gilgal, attack the core of the kingdom, and Saul even understood he needed God's favor. He needed Yahweh God to be with him. Without God's support, victory over the Philistines would be impossible. And so Saul explains this to God. And so Saul summarizes it in verse 12. 
So I forced myself. I didn't want to do it. I, I knew there could have been a better way, but I forced myself and offered the burn offering. I had no other choice. Kids, when you disobey your parents, or husbands and wives, when you lash out at your spouse, parents, when you discipline your children in anger, when you tell a small lie, when you harbor just a little bit of envy toward your friend, when you speak a mean word just to get a few laughs, do you and I make excuses? Ah, that's just a little thing. God is so loving, he'll overlook it. Do you concoct a sly explanation to justify your, your actions? See, invalid reasoning will not placate our holy God, and it will not vindicate ourselves and our disobedience. So the setting, the violation, the explanation. Now finally, let's look at the judgment. The judgment. Verse 13 and 14, and there are three parts to this judgment. The first is the verdict. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God. This Hebrew phrase that's translated, you have acted foolishly, it is both intellectual foolishness and moral foolishness. It encompasses both. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, uh, Hanani the seer came to King uh, Asa, king of Judah, and he says, for the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the land that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. But you have acted foolishly in this. And indeed, from now on, you shall surely have wars. So instead of having your heart wholly devoted to God, you have acted foolishly, intellectually, and morally. And so Samuel gives the verdict. Saul, you are guilty. As God's prophet and spokesperson, he announces it clearly to Saul and to all the hearing people, you are guilty. So the verdict, Saul, you are guilty. The second part of this judgment is the sentence. It's one thing to be pronounced guilty. What is what is your punishment? What is your sentence? Well, let's read on in verse 13. For now, Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. So Saul's sentence is this. He was not immediately deposed. He was still wearing the crown. He will still act as king for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. But what, what, what Samuel is, is pronouncing on God's behalf is that your dynasty will end. Your kingly rule will end and no future descendant of yours 
will retain the crown and hold the royal scepter. So the verdict, the sentence, and thirdly, the third part of the judgment, the successor. The successor. And let's look at the first half of verse 14. I love this. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. A man after his own heart. Listen to me as I read what Israel's king is supposed to do according to God's word in Deuteronomy. Moses writes, And the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he will write for himself a copy of the law on the scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. He will learn to fear Yahweh as God and carefully observe all the words of this law and these statues that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his sons in the midst of Israel. So Israel's king is actually supposed to, remember how precious these copies of God's word is. He is supposed to have a personal copy of in this case, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, a personal copy. He is to read it all the days of his life. He is to carefully observe it. And what God is saying through Samuel is that to Saul, that because you did not keep God's law, you will be replaced. God will choose a successor, a man after his own heart. So who is the successor? Who succeeds King Saul? Well, we'll learn in two weeks in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. See, a man after God's heart, God's own heart, is a man who has a sense of being committed to God's will and God's purposes. See, in the United States, in our Western thought, when we think of heart, we usually think of our emotions, our feelings. But in Hebrew thought, the heart is the place where one's will Desire and choice is exercised. The Apostle Paul quotes 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, saying that he raised up David to be their king, about whom he also said, bearing witness, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. In other words, 
a man after God's own heart is a man who will do God's will. Jesus says in Matthew, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. But I think all of us in this room will realize that since the first Adam committed sin in the Garden of Eden, no one is capable of doing the will of God. No one is a man after God's own heart. Jeremiah says that the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's it's desperately sick. But by God's grace, as we know, the second Adam came, our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said? He would tell everyone, his disciples, Jesus said, my will is to do the will of my Father who sent me to finish his work. Jesus said, I I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says in John chapter 6 again, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. None of us can do God's will. None of us is this man after God's own heart. The only person who will fulfill that role as successor is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus continues in John chapter 6. He says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So adults, kids, do you want to do God's will? Do you want to be that man after God's own heart? Well, if you do, then you do as Jesus says. You see the Son, you believe in him, and then something miraculously happens. Every single one of your sins, past, present, future, it gets nailed to Jesus on the cross. And every perfect act of righteousness that Jesus performed is credited to you. Martin Luther would uh, often chime out the phrase, simult Justus et peccator, right? At the same time, just and sinner. That that basically all of us, we are still sinners. But miraculously, when we look at the Son and we believe in him, God can somehow count us just, not guilty, no death sentence while we are still in our sinful state. It's a legal declaration. You are justified. The verdict is not guilty. There is no sentence. There is no punishment. So if you have not placed your faith and confidence in the Son, in Jesus, cry out to him and surrender your life to him today. Let's pray.